Welcome to Future Foodcast. I'm Pam Miller, your host, and I want to thank our sponsor, Farm to Plate. They are developing tomorrow's food business ecosystem today. And today's episode is really, really interesting. Coming right here from the United States of America, we have a homegrown family business. I'm so excited to introduce Amanda Severson. She's a, one of the owners at Grandview Beef. Welcome to the podcast, Amanda. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you, for you to bring your perspective to our audience today about what all this means to have Grandview Beef, family-owned business, and we'd like to dive into what you do there. So tell us a little bit about how you're set up first. Sure. So we are family owned and operated. We're located in Iowa, North Central Iowa. And how this started was the last 30 years, my in-laws have had a cow-calf operation. And so they were raising mama cows and calves and raising them out on pasture, using horses to move them. And then when the calves were weaned, they were taking those calves to a sale barn, which is kind of the typical uh, supply chain of how that works. And my husband and I met, we actually met out in Seattle and he was seeing all this beef for sale at the grocery stores that was pretty expensive and he was trying it and thinking, gosh, my parents' beef is better than that. <laughs> so uh, he really wanted to give it a try to actually finish that supply chain. So buy the calves from his parents and then take them throughout the rest of their life process and sell beef direct to people. And so uh, we started that business in 2017, and that's what we do. We buy all of the calves from his parents, and then we raise them as grass-finished beef. And I can talk a little bit about what that means later. Um, and when they reach their harvest weight, we work with a local processor who processes it into all the different beef cuts, and then we sell it direct to consumer, whether that be through a farmer's market, or online nationwide shipping it all over. That's a really cool story because essentially you just expanded your husband's parents' business and, and added on to that to be a bigger part of that supply chain of the beef getting to us as end consumers. And um, the fact that it's homegrown here in the USA, I know that's very appealing to a lot of our American listeners. They're looking for supporting family businesses, um, and businesses that are here in the United States, they like to buy from their own uh, people and, and support because it's hard, right? I mean, you're yes. a small operator and there are lots of operators that are a lot larger than you that have some different economies of scale. Yes. And, and one thing that we see is, you know, the, the statistics are showing small family farms are having a really hard time staying operational. And so for us to be able to offer a niche product, direct to consumer, add value so that we can be back on the family farm, but like you said, also add value for his parents where they can continue to be on their farm, expand their operation to meet our demand. That's something that's really unique and uh, we feel really blessed that we have the opportunity to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the trends I'm seeing at Future Foodcast as I talk to different people in the food industry is that consumers are really interested in knowing where their food comes from. And you 
very uniquely and specifically, I will say, answer that call because tell us what you do as far as tracking your beef. Yeah. And I, I think to start just sharing that I had no idea where my food came from seven years ago. So uh, when I met my husband in Seattle, I had no interest in agriculture, no background in it. If somebody asked me where my beef came from, I would say the grocery store. And also I would probably tell them I wasn't buying really that much beef because I didn't know if it was good for me. I was reading the newspaper headlines, believing anything I heard. So I, I'm coming from a perspective where I really didn't know anything about my food. Uh, and now obviously hugely passionate about helping others learn. So one of the things that we do to make sure that people really understand, know their farmer is, is we share daily about what we're doing. So we have a large social media following. We share every day how we're doing chores, what the cattle are eating, how we move them, uh, different controversial topics. We answer any questions that come in and share those out with the whole group so that people really feel like they have a personal relationship with their farmer and nothing is off limits. Uh, and then we take that a step further in that we want people to know and trust that they can track exactly where it came from. So yes, they can see the story of how we're doing it every day on social media or through our marketing, but then also when they get that beef package delivered to their house, if they look on the label right there, there's a lot code and that code traces back to the exact animal that that beef came from. And then with that code, we could tell you that animal's grandparents. <laughs> so we really try and have that full traceability back. That helps not only the consumer, but it helps us make better decisions too as the operator on you know which beef perform better, which bulls are doing well, have better marbling in their offspring. All those different types of decisions come back to that lock code. Very interesting. So you you can also discern, you know, we want to breed more of this type or less of that type based on the output that you're getting in the an actual animals from the different breeding matchups. Yes. Yeah, so that way we can see, you know, if we had a group of steers, that would be the boys that we, um, I guess I should give a little anatomy lesson for those who don't know beef cattle. So steers would be a male that was castrated. And that's what's typically used for beef production. Uh, and so that's what we purchased from his parents. So we could look at those records of the steers and say, wow, these this group was a lighter weight. They didn't finish quite as well. Oh, that could be traced back to this specific bull. And maybe we need to look at taking that bull out or on the other hand, wow, this group performed really well. Look at the marbling. Wow, that can all be traced back to this bull. We need to buy more bulls that have those type of genetics in them. And even the fact that we use bulls is a little old fashioned, <laughs> but we're quite proud of that. So we do everything the natural way. <laughs> okay. Well, and I'm sure, I, you know, the animals are a lot happier with that natural habitat as well. Speaking of which, you talked about them finishing as well. Can we circle back around to the grass finish, grass yeah. finished terminology used at the beginning and, and educate us a little bit about that? 
Yes. So typical beef that you would buy in a grocery store in America is going to be grain finished, meaning it had some sort of grain ration throughout the course of its life. And that could be corn, wheat, barley. There's a variety of grains that farmers use dependent upon where they're located in the United States. But the typical life cycle of a beef steer cattle that was going to beef production would be that it was born with its mother probably out on a pasture-based system. Most cow-calf operations are pasture-based. And then when it was weaned from its mother, it would move more into a feedlot type system. Um, sometimes there's an in-between there where there might be on some pasture supplemented with grain. But then for the last portion of its life, it's gonna be in a feedlot system being fed that grain ration. The reason why America has chosen to do that is that it is cheaper to finish beef that way and it is faster to finish beef that way. So we need to feed a lot of people. We need to do it affordably. That was an easy answer. Um, and then, of course, you know, it helps our grain farmers in the area because they're producing the grain. So that would be the traditional system that could take 14 to 18 months and the animal would reach a total weight of anywhere from 1,200 to 1,600 pounds. And that's even probably on the light end of things. Okay. Us, on the other hand, as a grass finished, when that animal's weaned from its mother around six months, then we purchase it from Newt's parents. We bring it to our operation, which is just a mile away. And we finish it on a grass forage-based system, meaning that it never has grain of any kind. Um, and there's nuances to that, right? Because actually corn is a grass. So we could technically graze corn until it reached a certain stage where it put on a seed head. But the important thing is we're not grazing anything that has like that cereal grain uh, attached to the plant or that's been dried and purchased from a farmer and feeding grain in a bunk. It's all grass that we're doing here. Um, the differences that that causes in finishing an animal are, are quite a uh, contrast to the grain finished. So it takes us anywhere from 24 to 28 months to finish the animal as opposed to that you know, 16 months of the grain finished, much longer timeline. Um, and the weights are not as big. So our average animal weighs about 1200 pounds. And so there is more risk in keeping the animal alive that long, there is more cost. And that's why you'll see that grass finished beef costs more. Uh, and there's few, people doing it. So there's really not a large amount of inventory there for people to choose from. Thank you for that explanation. And my next question is, why would I want to seek out grass-finished beef, in your opinion? Because I yeah. realize there are varying viewpoints on what kind of beef people want to consume, but I'd love to hear what you see as some of the benefits of a grass-finished product. Yes. And I will, I always say this caveat before I answer this question. And that is that if you're listening to this, you should feel confident that all beef in the American supply chain is safe to consume. And if you choose grain finished for your family, 
that's fine. That's your choice. We definitely believe in food choice for people. So I'll start with that caveat. Um, so the reason why people will seek out grass-finished beef, there's kind of two main reasons. The first being environmental. So grass-finished beef has a lower footprint because we are using animals to help capture carbon, keep it in the soils. It can actually help improve soil and bring back more topsoil. Uh, we see that on our farm. So we actually do a lot of data around soil testing before we've done a pasture-based system on a piece of ground and then keeping testing that ground one year, two year, three years, all the way up to you know 10 years to see what are the changes that we're making in that soil because we're using a pasture-based rotational system with the cattle. So grass finished is known for being good for the environment in that way. Um, and then the second camp is health reasons. So grass finished beef will be leaner than grain finished beef. It will have a different makeup as far as um, having some more vitamins, omega-3s, um, and, and that's a reason why a lot of people will choose grass finish. Now, if you went and you looked at research studies, it's going to show that there's not a statistical enough difference that if you choose grass finished over grain finished beef, you're going to be a healthier person, right? <laughs> it's all about a balanced diet, how much you're eating the beef, all those things. But a lot of people like it because it's a leaner option. So they don't feel quite as heavy after they eat it. They feel like they're body digest that grass finished better. Um, and then I guess I would add the third reason is taste. So again, it just comes back to consumer preference. Um, a lot of people like that grass finished has more of that beefier flavor. You don't have to season it quite as much. Um, whereas grain finished will have a more mild flavor. So just depends on what you and your family prefer. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that explanation. I'm learning so much here this morning. I hope <laughs> This is also uh, learning from all that you're sharing with us. Now, talking about the soil and, and how the impact on the environment and do it, you know, gathering data, you're still fairly new to this starting in 2017. And I don't know when you started that. So I imagine a lot of that data is going to be coming available in the coming years, you know, as you get more experience under your belt with this and can actually have the analytics of the impact that yes having on on your soil it definitely feels a little bit like delayed gratification when we have those people out here testing the soils we want to show the proof now and we have to wait a little um you know there are some things that we've seen so the very first year that we started the business we established a pasture that we then have rotationally grazed and we did have some baseline data for that. And we worked with a company that did soil tests and we actually won an award through them. So the most soil microbiological activity um, in that ground out of all of the soils that they tested that year, which essentially means that soil was living. There was a bunch of bugs in there and it had all of this biology going on, which is really healthy because it creates holes in the soil, the water, water infiltrates better into the ground. So that was something we were very excited about. Um, and then, you know, this last year, we took a piece of ground that has been row cropped for as far back as we could trace in history. So that would mean 
corn, soy, corn, soy every other year. And we turned it into pasture. So we did do some soil tests this last year before we turned it into pasture. And it, it wasn't very healthy. It's not very healthy soil right now. So I think that's the piece we're most excited to trace because it's starting in a really unhealthy spot. And let's see what over the next five years we can do by integrating some cattle onto that piece. Yeah. Well, Amanda, for, for those of our audience out there that are subscribers and hear all of our episodes, we did do a whole episode about a company that is all into the microbiome of the soil. So, and talking about that and how they're trying to enrich that and, and pay attention to that, do the testing on that. So uh, those listeners are going to be familiar with what you're talking about with the microbiology in the soil and the bugs and the, the healthiness of the soil. I would, I'm interested to check back with you in a few years and yes. find out the impact. I'm with you on the anticipation of that piece of it. Uh, the other part of what you explained about the grass finishing and essentially your animals are really free feeding where instead of getting a certain amount of the grains that they're fed in the other system, they're, they're out on, in pasture just eating as they're hungry and consuming uh, what they need to consume. And I think just from my perspective, that's kind of a different, a different way of raising your animals. Yes. And one assumption that I had made about this before we really got into it was, oh, the grass finished, you know, they just, they kind of control it themselves. So this will be easier in some ways. And one thing that we've learned is that, and I heard this, I heard somebody else say this the other day, so I'm stealing their words, but it's that it's a Goldilocks situation to have cattle grazing, meaning it has to be just right. And it's very hard because cattle are, have been domesticated. And so we really have to train them on how much to eat and what to eat. They're incredibly picky animals. And so if you give them a large piece of pasture and you say, have at it, they will go and they will pick their most favorite pieces of forage and they'll pick at that and they will leave the stuff they don't like as much. And that can be bad because then that stuff that they don't like as much grows up, seed head, more of it grows. And all of a sudden your pastures are taken over by things that are not as high quality. So one of the things that we have to do is we have to intensively graze them, meaning we put a high stocking rate, a large amount of them on a very small piece, you know, 70 head on a two acre piece for 24 to 48 hours. And we force them to eat all of it. <laughs> and, and that way they don't leave the stuff that they maybe don't like as much. They eat it all down, but they don't eat too much of it. And then we move them to the next piece. So we always want to make sure we're leaving enough of the grass that it can stay healthy, it can grow back, but that we've gotten them to eat down all of the different plants before we move them on to the next piece. Again, I had no idea. I assumed you just put them out, like you said, and let them have at it. But that makes a lot more sense. But that also is a lot more intense as far as planning and where you're moving your animals and when and keeping track of how you've done that so that you can evenly nutritionally 
evenly expose them to all the different varieties of things that you're growing. Okay, that's a lot more complicated than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> luckily, luckily, my husband focuses on that. His degree was in horticulture. So it really worked out well that this is now what we're doing. I mean, we would say we more have to focus on being grass farmers than cattle producers. Uh, and, and he manages all of that very well. <laughs> How great is that? Because I think that source of nutrition is really the important piece to the quality of beef that you're producing on the back end, Amanda. So thank you to your husband for handling <laughs> all of that part of it and that he's got the educational background to be able to do that. But then after you process your animals, uh, I think there's a difference there on how you age the, the beef as well, right? Yes, yes, yeah. So uh, typical beef that you would find in a grocery store has been wet aged. So that would mean that when the beef was processed, they cut it, they packaged it, and then as it's being transported to these grocery stores or wherever you're buying it from, it's actually wet aging within the package itself. And Again, this goes back to how can we have the most efficient supply chain in getting beef to people fast and cheaper. And so that wet aging process is best for that. However, how it used to be done is dry aging, which is when the beef is processed before it's cut, it's hung in a climate controlled space for a certain amount of days. And that process actually breaks down the fat increases the tenderness of the meat and concentrates the flavor, right? It's it's shrinking and it's concentrating that flavor. And so we do it that way. Uh, we work with a small processor where they dry age it for 14 days. And that way we have that increased tenderness, that increased flavor. And it really adds so much to the quality of the beef. Um, and then it's cut and packaged. And it's actually, so it's frozen when it comes back to us. And that's another big consumer misperception. And one that I had is I thought, oh, you're not supposed to buy frozen meat. You always want fresh, right? But in reality, the way that these small processors freeze the beef when it's dry aged like ours, it locks in and preserves that flavor like a fresh piece of meat. So it's frozen at such a low temperature that you could keep it in your freezer for up to a year and it would have amazing quality flavor taste you would never know that that piece of beef was frozen so when we get it back it's frozen and then we store it in a, a big walk-in freezer and sell it direct from there um okay. the dry aging thing it really just it adds so much that was a piece that i never understood until we started doing this and now i'm kind of a beef snob because it just tastes so good <laughs> Reflecting on the amount of knowledge and just the depth of knowledge that you have at this point after such a, you said seven years ago, you didn't even know where your beef came from. I think you've been in a very quick study and I really appreciate you sharing all of that with us because I too thought, oh, well, you shouldn't freeze it, but that's after I buy it in the grocery store, bringing it home, right. then the quality is not as good if I freeze it then. But what you're saying is it's frozen on the front end by that processor. It's almost like a, a flash freeze, like yes. locking in. It hasn't had time to age while in transit, essentially going through the supply chain. I mean, you you're doing that right at the source, and that would be that would be the difference there. So I think that's 
a really important differentiator and the dry age again we're uh, you're educating me this morning on all these different processes that that happen but and, and i hope what i hope what some people do you know if they hear this and they're like ah i want to try it but i wonder if there really is that big a difference what we love to encourage people to do is go buy a pound of ground beef from your grocery store and then buy a pound of ground beef from a local farmer or you can go online and buy it from us and cook them at the same time and just try it. And whichever one your family likes more, there's your answer for you. There, It's not right, wrong, or indifferent either way, but um, trying it, comparing it with different practices, different aging, you'll learn a lot about how different the flavors can be. Mm -hmm. And hopefully if they choose to go that local farmer, now you've given them some good questions to ask about the process and how the beef is finished and how it's aged and all these different qualities of the process that go on that, again, the average consumer has no idea that all this happens on the front end before the beef even shows up for them to purchase. And I really appreciate you giving us a window into your life that way. Is there anything else that you would like to share with us, Amanda, before we go today? I think my big message to everyone is always just to know your farmer. Uh, you know, as someone who didn't know a farmer myself, I was very confused walking into the grocery store. There are so many labels and claims and marketing schemes to try and get you to buy different things. And it's also confusing to us, right? And to know what really is best for you, best for your family, you're going to learn that not necessarily by a sticker on a package, but by having an honest conversation with someone who is raising that food, whether it be produce or meat, talking to the farmer, that's where you really learn and can ask questions and find farmers that align with how you and your family want to eat. So my big plug is if you're ever confused in that grocery store, just go find a farmer that's raising that product, have a conversation with them. And it's amazing how much you'll learn. Thank you so much. I also want to thank our sponsor, Farm to Plate. They are just impacting the food supply chain in innovative ways. You can find out more at farmtoplate.io. Until next time, I'm Pam Line Miller. If you enjoyed our interview with Amanda and want to see more like that, please subscribe and leave some comments. We'd like to know who else you'd like to hear from. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to Future Foodcasts. Future Foodcasts is powered by Farm to Plate, the leading food blockchain platform. Subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date with the very latest innovations in the food industry. 